Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. How we doing, folks? Good to see you. Glad to see those of you who have joined us from home as well. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors today. Um, and so we are going to be looking at Revelation chapter 2. Again, still having a few technical difficulties, so we're going to have to do this the old-fashioned way. You're going to have to have a Bible with you. Uh, but if you've got one at home, here's the good news. Even if you're unfamiliar with the text, this is going to be a really easy one to find. You just go right to the end. It's the very last book, the second chapter, starting in verse 18. It's the text that Pastor Dave read to us at the outset of our time together. If you're joining us from home, or for that matter, even if you're in the room, uh, we would love for you to reach out to us, particularly if this is your first time with us. We'd love to get to know you a little better, know how we can pray for you. Uh, and even if you've been here for years and years, this is actually the best way and the most direct way for you to communicate initially with our pastors and deacons. We'll reach back out to you if you request it. We'll make those, those personal connections. We love to visit with folks if they're comfortable with that. We love to call you, email, do all those kinds of things. But usually that starts by you reaching out to us just so we can know what's going on with you. And you can do that from your phone or from your laptop by simply going to connecttocovenant.com. So go to connecttocovenant.com. Let us know that you're here. Let us know how we can pray for you. If you're watching in, uh, in, on our Facebook platform and you want a, someone live to talk to you, there's a pastor, a deacon, someone monitor, monitoring that thread right now, and we would love to counsel with you, pray with you. If you want to start in the thread and move to offline, uh, we're, we're happy to do that. Whatever we can do today to be of service to you. And we have been and are now uh, about three weeks into a series called Misdirection. The fact being that so often Satan sends distractions into our lives that if we don't recognize them for what they are, can lead to out-and-out -out misdirection. We just end up completely off course, and we stay off course. We've learned from Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, those three churches, that this can happen not just in individual lives, it can happen to entire churches. And today, we look at another form of misdirection. We look at tolerance at Thyatira. Let me ask you a question. Are you a tolerant person? See, that word's been weaponized a lot, hasn't it? That word has been so used and abused by so many different people and so many different ideologies that I'm going to bet the minute I uttered that phrase, some of you and some of you watching from home probably had this reflexive sort of response to it. You didn't even think about it. You either, on the one hand, thought, well, of course I'm tolerant. I am open and diverse and evolved and progressive, and loving, and amazing. Others of you just sort of reflexively went, well, I, I believe the Bible, and I have convictions, and I don't compromise, and I'm not milk toast and warm, and no, I'm not tolerant because it'd be wrong. And then, and then some of you are a couple of steps ahead of those other two groups. I'm sorry, I love y'all, but they would be. If their answer would be, well, it kind of depends. It kind of depends, doesn't it? Tolerance is, is one of those virtues that we just sort of adopt unthinkingly. That has a long history in Western culture. The late G.K. Chesterton once said, tolerance is the virtue of the man without convictions. 
which would seem on the surface to be this sort of blanket tolerance is wrong. It really wasn't. And if you look at that statement in context, what he was challenging was what was then becoming a a cultural presumption, what philosopher Peter Berger calls a, a plausibility structure. There's a structure in which there are some things we don't even think about. We just adopt them. All right? we, we do some work with our partners in Vietnam, and we need to understand, if we're going to do that effectively, that there are certain cultural presumptions that are presented unthinkingly as the highest virtue, namely the saving of face and the keeping of honor. And if you don't understand that, and you're, you're trying to work through an Asian context and navigate things in that culture, you're not going to be very successful at that. And, and likewise, here in the United States and in Europe, tolerance has become this sort of unthinking highest virtue. That doesn't make it bad, but it does mean that when we hear the term, we have to stop for just a moment, and, and we have to think about exactly what it is that we're talking about. Because in the wider culture, Tolerance is just assumed, no matter how it's defined or how it's qualified, to be a virtue. If you are tolerant, if you are known to be tolerant, if you have a reputation for being a tolerant person, then you are automatically assumed by the wider culture to be an inherently good person. On the other hand, whether or not this is true of you, if you are presumed to be intolerant, you are simply narrow-minded, primitive, discriminatory, outdated, prejudiced, and bigoted right? That, that, that's where we're at. And in the middle of all of this is an unquestioned virtue. What are we talking about exactly? When anything becomes an unquestioned virtue in culture, it can become misunderstood, it can be misdefined, and as we have seen, it can also be weaponized and used against people. It can be abused. For example, when we talk about tolerance historically, particularly in the Western world, we're, we're really talking about a good thing, aren't we? Because tolerance really at its base is simply the power that keeps lovers of competing ideas from killing each other. That's all it is, right? We're not going to pull out our guns. We're not going to make, we, we love each other. We see the value of humanity in each other as a higher value than our disagreement about this particular issue. That's good tolerance. And tolerance of that sort has been rightly embedded over the last several decades and needs to continue to be embedded into our culture. You can't, if you own a restaurant, deny service to two people who come in there simply because they're living together and you think that's a sin. You cannot be fined or put in prison because you're a Presbyterian, right? Those things represent good tolerance. They're embedded into a healthy way into the social fabric of our nation. We see it right here in Shepherdstown. I'm going to tell you, one of the things I love, this, this quaint, beautiful little town, is they love a good cause, don't they? Some of y'all leave, love a good cause. And, and, and here's what's interesting, though. We're evangelical. In town are some mainline Protestant churches uh, that are worshiping right now. Outside of that are people who are atheists and agnostic. There are maypole dancers. There's naturists. And everybody else, if it weren't raining today, guess where we'd all be? Right around noontime. We'd be on German Street together as a community. And nobody's killing each other. Even when times get a little bit tense, you'll notice that even in this little town, you'll have an issue and there'll be some division and there'll be people on this side of the street next to the little library and people on this side of the street right in front of McMurrin Hall and they got their signs and they're protesting and they're yelling at each other under the careful watch of the local police department and then after all that's over some of them go out to dinner together that's good tolerance and as Christians whose 
initial ancestors rallied around the cry, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar, we affirm that. That's the foundation of what we're talking about. That's good tolerance. It is not the kind of tolerance that Jesus is speaking about here. He says in Revelation 2 and verse 20, to the church at Thyatira, I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now, that's, those are some charged words, aren't they? Jesus, it's interesting, you look at that word tolerate, what does that mean exactly? Well, the word that's translated from Greek into English is tolerance, it's actually quite fluid. And in Matthew 24, Jesus is predicting the destruction of the temple, and he says not one stone will be left upon another. That word left is actually the same word that we see here that is used as tolerance. And absent of any context, it simply means to be left undisturbed. So let's understand it in that way. Jesus is saying, there is a woman in your church, she's doing things that are dishonoring to me and to you, and you have left that undisturbed. You have left it alone. And the word literally means to leave in place, permitted to continue in place. Have you ever had this kind of disposition? If we ignore it, maybe it'll just go away. Well, wisdom dictates that sometimes that's true, actually. Proverbs tells us in chapter 25, in one verse, do not answer a fool according to his folly. And then the very next verse, you know what it says? Answer a fool according to his folly. What on earth? Was God schizophrenic that day? No, he wasn't. He was saying, this is a matter of discernment. There are some things that should just, just leave it alone. Eventually, it'll go away. Apparently, this was not one of those things. And the big idea here is that within the fellowship of the church, some things just can't be left alone. Some things have to be dealt with openly. Sometimes that's not easy to do. Sometimes that's not pleasant to do. Toleration of sin seems like the easiest path. Just ignore it. But faithfulness to Jesus in this kind of situation is hard. And today, what we're going to learn is that this is, at the end of the day, just a misdirection tactic from our enemy. Just leave it alone. Why be so judgmental? Well, because unfaithfulness to Jesus under the guise of tolerance is dangerous. It's dangerous to you. It's dangerous to me. It's dangerous to the church. It's dangerous to the mission. So let me give you three principles here that rise out of Jesus' message to this church in this blue-collar town that we'll also be describing over the next few moments. The first principle is this. Our discernment should match our devotion. What we think about a thing should be completely in line with our devotion to Jesus and what we know he has commanded us to do. Verse 18, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Boy, there's a lot here, isn't there? And it begins actually with this revelation of Jesus He's revealing himself in some awesome imagery, and particularly the Christians in this church that would have had a Jewish background would have instantaneously recognized that imagery. Let me read just a couple of passages for you uh, that would back this up, beginning in Ezekiel chapter 1, and upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw it 
as it were gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around and downward from what had the appearance of his waist I saw it as it were the appearance of fire and there was brightness around him. Likewise in Daniel chapter 10 and verse 6 we see this description of our Lord. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. So this is a God who both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, by virtue of his mere appearance, reveals that he should be our highest virtue, our highest value, that he is worthy of all of our worship and all of our devotion and everything we have, heart, soul, mind, and strength. We've read that somewhere else too, haven't we? This is what he's worthy of. And for the most part, he says to the church at Thyatira, you've done this. For the most part, you've recognized me for who you are. I know your works. And he mentions four in particular. Number one, your love. You, you love me. You love each other. That's obvious when I look at you and your practice with each other. Number two is your faith. Your work in this area demonstrates that you trust me even in the middle of hard times. Number three, your service. Your actions match your words. You walk your talk. Number four, your patient endurance. You stand immovable in the midst of everything that surrounds you. But right on the heels of all that commendation comes verse 20. And it reveals a contradiction within the body. There's something going on in your midst, Jesus says, that you have left undisturbed. And because you've just left it alone, hoping that it would go away, it didn't go away. It kept growing. And it kept getting worse. And it's not healthy. And it centers, in this context, around a woman. Jesus calls her Jezebel. Now, that's most likely not her real name. But instead, he's using this as a pseudonym to describe her real character. And so, let's do a little review on the actual, original Jezebel. Vintage Jezebel from the Old Testament. What would Jesus' reference to this name tell us about this woman? Well, the original Jezebel lived during the days of the prophet Elijah. She was not Jewish. She was Phoenician by birth, but she married into the kingdom of Israel by her wedding to a wicked king in Israel at that time by the name of Ahab. And because of that marriage, she instantaneously gained a lot of authority and power and influence over a people who were not her own, over a nation that was not her own, but she began to wield it almost immediately and in very, very wicked ways. In fact, she um, marginalized and persecuted many of the men of God who were around her husband. She did not like some of those leaders, and so she had them put to death. She brought what we would call in this century alternative spirituality into Israel, the worship of a God that her people called Baal. She starts her own training program, and she integrates the worship of Baal with the worship of the God of Israel. Today, we would call that syncretism, the blending of conflicting religious ideologies. And then on top of that, she told them that they could have their faith in Yahweh and simultaneously have their commitment to an immoral lifestyle. In short, what Jezebel taught the people of Israel through her power and influence and teaching was that this faith in the God of Israel is not either or. You really don't have to choose. Your faith really can be both and. You can include pretty much anything you want. And apparently, there is now another woman in this city called Thyatira who was much like this first Jezebel. We, we have no idea how she found her way into the church, 
But we do know that like that first Jezebel, she's, she's wielding great influence and she's using it to divide the body. Don't listen to the pastors. Don't listen to the leaders. They're not as enlightened as me. All right. I watched a bunch of YouTube videos and I got this figured out. All right. I read a book by some guy who denied the resurrection, but it made a lot of sense to me. And so these are the things, and, and, that, and that leads ultimately to two things at this church, sexual immorality on the one hand and idol worship on the other. And as we learned last week looking at Pergamum, those two are always found together. One always, always leads to the other. It has gotten to the point that after almost three decades of ministry, when a guy comes to me, especially a dude, and he starts talking about, well, I'm exploring this or I'm exploring that, and there are things that are obviously at odds with the Christian message, especially if he was a cradle roller and he grew up in church, story after story after story, I could tell you of, of young men that I've talked to about that, and I'm looking into this or I'm, I'm looking into that, that I've gotten to the point that after about 15 minutes, I just look at him and go, so who are you sleeping with? Because eventually, one always leads to the other. It just does. And we see these two together. And, and, and here's how that worked out in Thyatira. Thyatira was a lot like the town that I grew up in. I grew up in a town called Greer, South Carolina. Does anybody know? You ever been to Greer? Anybody? All right, a few of you. Thank the Lord. Some of y'all know what it is. In 1990, BMW came to my hometown. And that's why the three of you who raised your hands know where it's at. All right, before then, it was, uh, it was Greenville. Where are you from? I'm from Greenville. And, and saying I'm from Greenville could mean I'm from Greer. It could mean I'm from Dark Corner. It could mean I'm from Fountain Inn. It could mean I'm from Simpsonville, right? It, it's, it's, it's one of those things. And, and, but, 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 but when BMW stands for Bubba Makes Wheels, when it came to my hometown, we got some fame out of that deal. We got some growth out of that deal. Thyatira was a lot like that. They, they might tell you, well, I'm from here, I'm from there, and they would describe the general region because Thyatira was, again, like my town that I grew up in, a textiles town. That's where it was. My grandparents made their living and raised my parents working in textile mills, and that really was what this was, and, and, and it's a blue-collar town as a result. Uh, if you remember Lydia from the book of Acts, by the time we encounter her, she's living in Philippi, but she actually grew up in Thyatira, and we discover that she's a textiles executive. She owns a business that is marketing purple cloth, the royalty, all over the region, and the town was that. It was just a, a town full of what would have been the ancient equivalent of textile mills, and because you've got a lot of blue-collar people working in this town, you have a lot of trade guilds, or what today we call unions people who would collectively come together and they would bargain with their employers and, and, and those guilds like today. You've got a carpenter's union, you've got a plumber's union, you've got an electrician's union. They, they would collectively come together for developing each other and the next generation in the skilled trades. And, and those guilds provided access to employment. They provided lift out of poverty and into prosperity. Uh, but, but the problem is when those guilds would gather, and if any of you are part of a union, you probably know how this is, you know, when they call you into a meeting, sometimes there's a lot of alcohol involved in there. Oftentimes way too much. Sometimes you get into the middle of this thing and you go, I don't know if they're using my dues to actually help me or to buy all of that Woodford Reserve I see on the top shelf. Like, I don't know, right? And, and what was happening more so with the trade guilds is that they would meet, 
Those who were pagan would offer sacrifices to their idolatrous gods, and then they would cook that meat and expect everybody to partake in it. And that would make the Christians of strong conscience in that environment very, very nervous. It would put them in a precarious position. Then after they're done with the meal, some of them, because they're already three sheets to the wind, they would wife swap. They would drink heavily. They'd get naked together until the whole thing just turned into some crazy, you know, frat house meets Mardi Gras kind of thing. Many Christians in this environment were marginalized because they flatly refused to participate in those kinds of activities. And so somewhere along the way in that environment, a woman finds her way into Thyatira and she begins to say to the church there, you can have both. It's okay. Yeah. We, we've, we've read the Bible again. And we're asking some different questions and now we're coming up with different answers. Now, you know, forget about the fact that in our day, people who say that kind of thing go really sort of ignore 2,000 years of ethics in order to get there. But it, it, it's the similar kind of terminology after deep, thoughtful study. We've determined that you can have it all. You can really do that. You, you can, it's okay. A little bit of sexual immorality. Hey, you got a, you got a living to make. A little bit of idol worship. That, that's okay. That's all right. He, Jesus understands. I know your pastors are talking about to you about remaining morally pure and ethically straight, but you know, it, nobody's perfect. Whatever happens in the trade guild stays in the trade guild. Don't hold yourself to such a high standard. Don't be so judgmental of other people. Sound familiar? Churches today, some of them have this teaching. You can follow Jesus and fornicate now and then. It's okay to follow Jesus and watch porn on occasion. It's all right to follow Jesus. If you want to get your palm read, go get your palm read. You want to play with those tarot cards, go right ahead. Stay in that same-sex relationship. Jesus loves you. Who are we to judge? And Jesus shows up in the middle of that environment, and he says, well, I am the judge, and I'm going to judge. And you need to love each other enough to discern this harmful thing among you, and you need to love each other enough to root it out. Here's the big idea. When the Word of God collides headlong with anything you're involved in, change the thing, not the Word. Don't change the Word of God to fit this it, it might feel good initially. It may, be very, it may promise you all kinds of things. Instead, let the Word change you. Either you're going to change it or it's going to change you. If it changes you, you're in for some profound change. If you change it, guess what? Well, it still ain't going to be changed. So you may as well stop arguing with the stop sign, kicking against the goads, and be discerning. Here's the second principle we find in Jesus' interaction with Thyatira, you and I are never under any circumstances allowed to be more tolerant than God. Verse 21, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. Those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. Those are hard words. Unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. 
and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Now, God, as we see in the first phrase of verse 21, he doesn't immediately just drop the hammer on sin when he sees it. He is patient. But we also see here that his patience eventually runs out, and when it does, the pain is great. This is why the church is commanded to reflect his treatment of sin in something called church discipline. I'll just reference you to the 18th chapter of Matthew, right around the latter part of the chapter. Very simple procedure there. If you have something against someone, if they are sinning, if they're doing something that's unhealthy for them or someone else, you go directly to that individual, you talk to them about it. Maybe at that point, through the power of the Holy Spirit and his conviction and your prayers, all of that combined turns that individual and they repent. In which case, game over. Let's go back to where we were. Let's offer forgiveness. We're all done all because of the blood of Jesus. I love that part of it. If it doesn't, if there's no movement on the part of that person, you take two or three more people back with you and by the witness of two or three people, so this isn't just a he said, she said, it actually becomes established that this individual is into something that's very harmful both to them and to the people around them. Step three then goes to the church, usually embodied in the senior leaders, the pastors, the deacons, and then he says, you, you make your judgments as the church based upon my righteousness up to and including excluding those people from the fellowship of the church who continue to behave in this way or to teach these things. And then he says this, to the degree that you make those judgments based on my word and my standards of righteousness, to the degree that you reflect my heart and judgment, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then comes that passage that we all love to take out of context. For where two or three or more are gathered in my name, I am there. You ever see that one on a coffee cup? Sounds like sweet fellowship, right? It actually comes right at the end of this passage. This isn't about sweet fellowship. This is about the fact that when the church issues judgments against sin based upon the clear teaching of the word of God anchored in the righteousness of Christ it is as if Jesus is right there with us when we do it and it doesn't matter how many people in the world might vote against it because Jesus is literally there with his people and so Jesus says you this is your job I know it's hard but you have to do these things the church is to be the conduit of God's correction. And when the church doesn't follow this, God judges the church. We see another example of this in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul speaks into that context. There's a guy sleeping with his stepmother, coming in, sitting front row center. Not any of you sitting front row center. I'm not implicating any of you in any of this. He sits front row center. He's got his arm around her. And Paul says, turn him over to Satan. Get this out of here. That's not, you know, that's not very tolerant. Well, I think what we're learning here is tolerance can be a good thing, but it is not God's highest value. It's not his highest virtue. Holiness is, especially when it concerns his people. And that process, even though Thyatira hasn't followed it, is apparently still moving forward. That's what Jesus is saying in these verses. Y'all need to catch up because while you were asleep at the wheel, I was giving this woman time. But she's refused. And so now judgment is coming. And that's, you know, like, Pastor, those are 
tough words up there in verse 22. What does that mean? I, I fear that it means exactly what it says. Because when it comes to unrepentant rebellion and sin, God loves you, but he ain't playing with you. He's not. Get this out of my presence. Is that unloving? Well, no. let's put it this way. Let's understand this passage, right? Because you can, again, don't, don't just reflexively, oh, I'm tolerant, I'm progressive, I'm evolved, I'm amazing, or, right? You're like, you didn't even express any words. Yeah, a lot of people are just, that's all they can say. They're just nasty. They're not standing on the Bible. They're just nasty curmudgeons. Right? So how do, it, neither of those responses understands that this passage occurs within the wider meta-narrative of the, of the Word of God that reminds us that God is patient and that Christianity as a result should start at the same place our Lord always started with tolerance, by meeting people where they are. If we understood that, so much of this culture war crap would just go away, at least inside the church. It, it just would. When you look at another human being, you are looking at the image of God. You're looking at someone that Jesus died to save. You don't dehumanize that person unless you want to incur the wrath of God. And we know that. It starts, it starts with tolerance. Sexually immoral people are created in God's image. Idol worshipers as well. We love those people. I, I don't even know. There might be somebody in front of me right now that's like that. Somebody watching from home and there's like that. Our church loves you. We may disagree, but we love you. And furthermore, we, we commit to protect you as an image bearer of God. I know that's controversial today, but it really shouldn't be. There, there's not a single passage anywhere in Scripture that tells me or you that our responsibility as a Christian is to make sure that somebody can't get a job or can't get a roof over their head because of who they're sleeping with. Not one single passage. But Matthew 25 tells me in no uncertain terms, I have a responsibility in the public square to ensure that people have a roof over their head and a means of making a living and an ability to put food on the table and an ability to put clothes on their back. And if we are any Anywhere other than that, regardless of who we're talking about, that's not contending for righteousness. That really is hatred. But now when you come in to a church that's like that, everybody's welcomed, everybody's loved. This is a value we've had as a church long before I came here. It's one of the reasons I came here. Eventually, though, if you're in a faithful church for very long, God will use his word to pierce you and to expose things in your life that are unhealthy for you, and that will eventually, if you don't repent, will lead to judgment on you. And that can't happen if the people of God act more tolerant than their God. You start to see how all this works, right? You can't do that. When we act more tolerant than God, the only thing we're doing is accelerating the process of judgment. We're putting people on fast track to hell. That's not love. That too is hatred of the other individual. One of the most hateful things that we can do to one another. And that is why we need to see this. Tolerance is good. 
tolerance, at least in terms of that, that I talked about earlier, where people differing ideas, different choices. Oh, listen, we, we're going to live with each other. We're going to seek peace as much as is possible with our neighbors. We're going to do all of that. But tolerance is not the highest virtue. God tells his people, your highest virtue is faithfulness, not tolerance. Verse 24, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. What's he doing? He's, well, he's differentiating between parties and the church, isn't he? And, and by the way, that, that's hard to do as well. But so often, that's, that's what we're talking about. So we're, Jesus did not condemn outright anyone in that church who was doing immoral things. He, why? Not, is it because he approves of it? No, not at all. It's because he's being patient. He's calling them lovingly to repentance. His harsh words were saved for a woman, not only because of her perpetual immorality, but because of what she was teaching in the church, because of what she was influencing others to become, because of the corruption that she was bringing on that body. And on that issue, and in that situation, there's absolutely no middle ground. Jesus says, you're either with me or you're against me. For those who are with me, well, you're faithful, and you don't need to feel any weight Sometimes when I have to say things that are particularly hard, I'll get a phone call, I'll get an email, and, and, and there'll be an individual, I was, I was just disturbed by what you've said, and I'll have a conversation with that person. And that, Number one, I'm always honored by the fact that they didn't gossip and they didn't slander and they didn't, they just they came directly, and I'm, and I'm always open to that. Because I can make a mistake, and when I do, I need, to, I need to repent. But sometimes I can also be misunderstood, particularly in a culture that's so hot take as ours is. And so one of the best experiences I ever have as a pastor is being able to end a phone conversation like that by, after asking several questions, discovering that the person hasn't implicated themselves. Now, sometimes you, you do, and I love you, but if you implicate yourself, I can't tell you you're okay. I got to, yeah, you were, I guess that does mean you were the person I was talking about. But sometimes it brings such great relief such great harmony when after a few questions and a, you know, not even a really lengthy conversation, although sometimes it takes a while, I can say to the other person, I wasn't talking about you, which is effectively what Jesus is saying to the rest of this body. You, this is not a burden that you right now need to feel necessary to bear because you have been faithful. You've been faithful. For you, that's the only challenge. Continue being faithful. Verse 25, only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen posts or pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And what is the Spirit saying to the churches? He's saying to this group of Christians, you will rule the nations with me. Now that's quite a promise to a bunch of blue-collar people, isn't it? But that's exactly what's going to happen. We live in a culture and a world where you, you, we think about things like prestige and power and money and position and authority. And we think, and oftentimes we rightly think, all of those things 
are given to somebody who has a particular kind of last name or somebody with a particular kind of degree hanging on the wall. And Jesus, in these closing verses, reminds us, my kingdom does not operate that way. You stick with me, and you be obedient, and you be faithful. And there is coming a day, brothers and sisters, when male and female, Jew and Greek, slave and free, white-collar, blue-collar, Ph.D. and high school dropout, we will all reign together. That's how the kingdom works. But there's one non-negotiable entry point to that kingdom, faithfulness. Just be faithful to me. Just come to me first and continue to be faithful. This church is learning the false teaching and immorality go hand in hand. And in that environment, tolerance is not a virtue. Several years ago, there was a very, very notable theologian who learned this the hard way. Dr. J.I. Packer, who's been an enormous influence on my life, wrote a book in 1973 that I still think everybody in this room, you don't even need to read it. You don't need to just read it. You need to like buy five copies and give, them, give the other four to friends. I love this book. It's called Knowing God. It's an amazing book. Packer, just a, just a giant of a theologian. His denomination, some years ago, Packer's with the Lord now. He died at the age of 93 just this past July. The denomination that he'd been part of for 40, maybe 50 years, ministering the gospel, decided that they were going to grant ordination, credentialing to ministers of the gospel who were actively involved in sexual immorality and had no intention of ever stopping. So Packer, being who he is, and with his convictions, respectfully, but clearly pushed back. His denomination defrocked him. They yanked his ordination. You're like, what's that mean? Well, if you're a lawyer, it would be like being disbarred. If you're a physician, it would be like losing your medical license. All of his credentials, gone. They kicked out J.I. Packer. If you don't know, if the weight of that doesn't get you, maybe because you don't know who Packer is or you're unfamiliar with this particular tribe of Christians. Imagine millions of evangelicals getting together to burn Billy Graham at effigy. Okay, that's what's happening here. It was a shocking moment. Packer, very respectful, but he did not budge. He said, my former denomination is now heretical and apostate. And then he said this, Christianity is about a life of repentance. A life of repentance. And anytime we don't practice repentance of sin and preach repentance of others' sin, we are heretics because we are not teaching what Jesus taught. That powerful soul is with Jesus now. Where's the next J.I. Packer going to come from? Where's he going to come from? From whence will he emerge? I have no idea who he or she might be. But I know the characteristics based on the text we just looked at. It's going to be the student who's willing, if necessary, to, to see her GPA go down because she raises her hand on behalf of her king in the classroom. It's going to be the middle manager who's willing, if necessary, to get passed over for promotion because he refuses the unethical orders of his boss. It's going to be the senior executive who is willing to lose business and status and reputation, even if necessary, because she'd rather be faithful to the Lord. But the bottom line is this. When it comes to sin and false teaching, you have a choice to make, and so do I. 
And either choice has a cost. Every choice you make in this regard has a cost. Here's the way you make the best choice. Make it with a keen awareness that judgment day is coming. We live in a world that all the short-term stuff, man, it just glitters, doesn't it? I'm a redneck. Just put a glitter finish on anything, and I'm more attracted to it, right? Every, man, there's so much stuff that glitters in this world. It seems very rich, very rewarding, until you get to the life to come. Heaven is real. So is hell. You say, I don't believe in hell. Your belief is irrelevant. It exists but you can repent. Just like this woman Jezebel, Jesus is patient. Jesus is loving. Jesus is giving you time, time to leave sexual immorality, time to leave false teaching, time to stop liking social media messages of people's actions that you know are sinful because you want to be in their tribe and liked by them. He's giving you time to stop enabling sin and rebellion in the lives of people that you claim to love. What's it going to be? Tolerance or faithfulness? Lord Jesus, you make your demands clear, but you don't do it merely to subjects. You do it to children. And like a loving father, we thank you for the way in which you spoke to this church and through this church to our church. And we pray now, Father, would you by your spirit, give us the capacity to love unconditionally, to apply tolerance in areas where your commands, such as in Matthew 25, would demand it, and simultaneously, Father, to be willing to speak the truth in love. This may be one of the most excruciatingly difficult periods in history, in this culture, in which to practice those things. And we're going to be tempted, Father, on the one hand to just be mean and nasty and ugly and, or on the other to do what these men and women did. Just, just, just leave it undisturbed. Let it alone. Don't talk about it. Don't, don't talk about it. Don't, don't. And Lord, we know on the basis of your word, both those routes are unfaithful to you. So make us faithful today. If there's someone watching who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, may today be the day that they cross that threshold of faith, give you their lives, walk away with your death and resurrection as their foundation for a full life here, an eternal life in the next world. I make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.